Hello and welcome to Sports in the Waiting Room. I am your host, Chris Russo. Let's get right into it. There is a new home run champion in Major League Baseball. I respectfully disagree. Honestly, it's, honestly, depending on how far you go, I might disrespectfully disagree with your argument if you have one that Barry Bonds is the single-season home run leader all-time, let alone McGuire or Sosa. Aaron Judge has passed Roger Maris, breaking a tie with his 62nd home run of the season. He hit 60 and 147 games. That's fewer than Babe Ruth did in 1927. Fewer games it took than Ruth in 27. Fewer games than Maris took in 61. He hit 61 in 155 games. That is fewer than it took Maris. Maris took 157. And he breaks the record in game 161. And although it was not in Houston, it is a little bit ironic, I guess a little bit poetic, that he does it in the state that kind of robbed him of American League MVP in 2017 when, if not for the the scandal with the Houston, Tex- Houston Texans, Houston Astros judge probably very likely would have won American League MVP and would have been only the third player in history to win Rookie of the Year and MVP in the same year in Major League Baseball following Fred Lynn and Ichiro Suzuki. Also, would have been only all three would have been American leaguers. But let's face it, it really is the the real record considering you look at Bond's appearance. I genuinely, I, I, I make this point. It's true. I think Barry Bonds looks like Violet Beauregard from whatever your era, Willy Wonka on the Chocolate Factory or, Char, or Charlie on the Chocolate Factory where he just blows up like a blueberry. That's what he looks like in the early 2000s. And you know what? Pittsburgh and early San Francisco, he's on pace not only to be a Hall of Famer, but to be one of the great baseball players of all time. But he cheated. I don't think there's really much of a doubt. And then there's the argument, you know what's funny, where I, where I find all of this wisdom, I actually found, I saw something from Bill Burr. And, you know, if, I mean, granted, people really wanted to see Judge break the record regardless of fandom, but Bill Burr is a huge Red Sox fan. Big Boston guy, and some people, you know, some people in Boston probably did not want to see him break the record against them. There was, I'm not even saying this was necessarily true, but there were some arguments that maybe Boston pitchers, amongst others, amongst, you know, Baltimore pitchers, amongst maybe Texas pitchers, pretty much anyone he faced down the stretch, were pitching around him. But, you know, Bill Burr even saying, though, that people who make the argument that everybody cheated, everybody cheated, is ridiculous that everybody cheats at some point. It's an outrageous argument, and he's absolutely right. So I think, and then I think he argued about Sammy Sosa and how he, I mean, if you look at him now, Sammy Sosa is like, I've heard jokes about Sammy Sosa being a vampire with some of his pigment. I don't know if it's true. I don't know if it could could just be a skin condition. I don't even know if it has anything to do with it. And my apologies if it does have, you know, if it is just a medical condition that isn't induced by anything. But I think everybody said, Sosa probably took it. And Mark McGuire, although I give him a ton of credit for his persona, for for the way he treated the Maris family in 1998 and the fact that he actually admitted to doing steroids. He's the one guy of the three who actually admitted to doing it. You know, I, you know, McGuire admitted to taking steroids. So at the very least, one of those guys did it, but probably all three. This is this is the true record to me. 
And it's funny that this happened 61 years later, after 61 years after 61. It's just so incredibly poetic. And, you know, going back to the MVP argument, believe me, nobody knows if Judge is not probably not going to be a unanimous AL MVP. Most other years he probably would be, but Shohei Otani has had, at least when you combine it with his pitching, an MVP caliber season. I think Judge will win, and I think Judge probably should win, considering the historic aspect of it. And not not to mention just his overall stats. I mean, he had, at least entering this final day, I don't know if he's going to play in the last game. I don't think he should. But 131 runs batted in. I think there are maybe like six active players with higher totals. I think the highest... I mean... I think the highest total in of any active player is like 137 for Miguel Cabrera in 2012. I think Arenado has a couple, Miguel Cabrera has a couple, and I think Pujols might have a couple. But this is very, very rare company for Judge. And on top of that, he is, I think, last I saw, I think tied for 28th in highest war for a single season all time. Babe Ruth has like nine of those, I think. But it is... It would be the the second highest of the second highest to come since 2010. I think he was about 0.2 WAR behind Mookie Betts' 2018 season, and Betts did not have the the record breaking. Uh, you know, Betts Betts' 2018 season because of this record is probably not going to be as remembered as Judge's 2022 season. But on top of that, the only guys in the 21st century with a better WAR in a single season than Aaron Judge this year are Mookie Betts in 2018 and Barry Bonds at a point where he was probably taking steroids the entire time. Because the rumor was that it was probably around 1999, following McGuire and Sosa breaking Maris's record again, probably with an asterisk, that Bonds probably started using performance-enhancing drugs. And that's on, on top of that, there was another funny point that Bill Burr made, that it literally says performance-enhancing drugs. Drugs. It says it all in the title, right? In the title, right there. So, I think it's rather disappointing for for the people who do think that that Judge is not the record holder, that Maris was not the record holder, even beyond 1998, even beyond 2001, and that's even for Judge. Well, Judge, even you can you can give him a pass, Judge, for saying that Bonds is the record holder because you know what? I I would understand because Judge. Grew up in California, grew up a Giants fan, and so that meant so much to him. So you can understand it at that point. But again, handled so well by Judge. He's just been so generally very, very calm. He's always said the right thing. I don't know who was responsible for having the Maris family there, whether it was the organization, whether it was Judge, whether it was the Marises themselves, I don't know but just handled very well, handled lovingly throughout this whole thing. And uh, to, to pass a guy like Roger Maris, people are not going to forget Roger Maris's impact because if people are still talking about Babe Ruth, you know, 74 years after he died, if people are still talking about Roger Maris 61 years after he died, they're going and, and you break the record of, the greatest baseball player and one of the greatest athletes of all time. People will not will never stop talking about you. 
So it, it was really just a wonderful thing for baseball. And I'll also say this. Over the last two or three years, Major League Baseball has had a lot of snafus. First and foremost, the Houston Astros situation, the, the, the idea that this could even happen, let alone the lack of punishment. And then there was the pandemic. The pandemic hurt every, everyone, obviously, but part of baseball having a 60-game season in 2020 was not just COVID precautions, but also it was a precursor to the labor negotiations that would take place this year. And so that was another thing where we had to push back Major League Baseball's opening day by two weeks. And then we've had these rules like the... I came around on the seven-inning doubleheader, but the rules like the runner on second in the tenth inning, or the runner on second starting in extra innings, and certain things that have just happened to baseball that have kind of turned fans away. It's, it's kind of reminiscent of everybody being turned off after the strike in 94 and then early into 95, where, look, I can be honest in saying that the the Maguire-Sosa chase certainly helped. I'd like to think that the that Cal Ripken breaking the Ironman streak was more crucial to getting fans back in the ballpark, and I think it was very crucial. But I'd be lying if I said the Maguire... Sosa Chase was not huge in the resurgence of baseball following the strike, in the resurgence in fan popularity. But even then, that one was tainted. I think this is a point where... I think it's a turning point for the sport, and it's a turning point for... In turn, because, you know, baseball is... such a major, major part of American culture. I think it's a turning point in some ways for Americans in that there's a little more hope, that there's a a new leader that, well, a new leader by baseball standards, let me me clarify, but that there's a new home run champion and we can, and, you know, who, it's highly unlikely that he actually cheated and just a class act. And it's just a positive, positive thought. It's hard in this day and age to not be cynical. It's hard to not be negative because people put that on you. But I think this is honestly a moment that it kind of transcends baseball that is trying to bring out the best in all of us. And so this is this was a great day for Major League Baseball. This was actually not the only thing to uh, not o- not the only major record to be broken by the way, not league-wide, but Garrett Cole actually broke Ron Guidry's record for strikeouts in a single season, which is very impressive. He's had not the m- most imp- not the most impressive year, but still he's been an innings eater. His ERA's been For what he's being paid, not incredible, but decent. He's at about a 3-5, I think. And really just eating up innings and throwing a lot of strikeouts. So in many ways, he has lived up to his contract. 
couple more Yankee things. Zach Britton placed on the 60-day IL with left arm fatigue. Unfortunately, got hurt in just his first game back after being out for the vast majority of the year. Clay Holmes is unavailable until the American League Division Series with a shoulder injury. And Ron Marinaccio is on the 15-day IL with a right shin stress fracture. The Yankees will need a lot of help in that bullpen that has already been banged up with Michael King done for the year and Chad Green done for the year. Now Britain for sure done for the year. Chapman's been hurt as well. Now, let's talk about the actual MLB postseason because it turns out we have locked everything up going into this final day. Everybody is in their place. So, start with the American League. Number one, the Houston Astros. Again, it's really probably the most impressive managing of Dusty Baker's career to come in with this organization with all the flack that this team took, at least the guys who are still there from the 2017 team, and just to be a calming influence to lead that team to the American League pennant last year to lead them to the best record in the AL this year. That's an incredible rotate. Really, they, they have a great homegrown rotation that has bounced back from losing Cole to free agency, from letting go of Keuchel, from losing McHugh. So with guys like Valdez and Urquidy, really, uh, they've done a great job of, of growing guys within that organization. And of course, Jordan Alvarez, who is, I would argue, the most important player for the Houston Astro organization. Forget Altuve, forget Bregman. Seriously, I think Alvarez is the most important ball player and the best hitter in that lineup. Yankees will be the two seed. They started out something like 61 and 28, and then I think went something like it was like 15 and it was like 18 and 31. And then I think have won probably, I think like they went on like a 16 and 5 run after that. So just weathering this month-and-a-half storm, it's almost like the 84 Tigers where they just sprinted out and kind of, they limped for a while but went into more of a sprint at the finish, which is more impressive considering their injuries in the lineup. They lost Matt Carpenter, but and Stanton was out for a while, but their injuries in the bullpen as well. The three seed will be the Cleveland Guardians. First time the Guardians have ever made the playoffs. Terry Francona becomes the winningest manager in the history of the organization. Now remember that for Terry Francona because people some, some people do not realize that he actually only spent eight years in Boston. He's now spent more time in Cleveland than he did with the Red Sox. And that's not an easy task, I would say, actually, becoming the winningest manager in Cleveland history. I know they haven't won it since 1948, but that's you know Lou Boudreaux and Charlie Manuel, Eric Wedge, Number of pretty good ball. Uh, number of pretty good managers. Frank Robinson was the first ever African American manager. So a lot of history within that Cleveland organization, and Terry Francona is a guy who is obviously on his way to the Hall of Fame, and he may actually go in with a Cleveland now Cleveland Guardians logo if he does go in with a logo. Cleveland, I look. This is definitely not the the best lineup they have had. This is not a team. This is not like 2016 where they still had Lindor, and they still had Kipnis, and, you know, God knows how many other guys, but Jose Ramirez is a big anchor in the middle of that lineup. They have a lot of young talent, and they have one of the most underrated and one of the scariest rotations in baseball being anchored by Shane Bieber. So they are a threat. 
Number four, the Toronto Blue Jays. Credit to them because they've had pitching struggles this year. They let go of their manager, Charlie Montoyo, during the season. But they are not only a wild card, but they are also getting home field. They will get home field against the number five-seeded Seattle Mariners. Cal Raleigh hitting a walk-off home run to put the Mariners in the playoffs for the first time since 2001. I have time and time again talked about how the Mariners have been mismanaged by their front office, most notably that quote from Lou Pinello's autobiography, Howard Lincoln, who said the goal of the Mariners, I'm paraphrasing, but the goal of the Seattle Mariners is not to win the World Series every year, but to feel a competitive team and hopefully at some point win the World Series. The Seattle Mariners have finally gotten things together. They have broken, I believe, the longest active playoff drought in the major in the four major professional sports leagues. And they are going to the playoffs. They're going to Toronto. Number six, the Tampa Bay Rays. Going back to the postseason, again, maybe not as scary as the 2020 team, but a, a team that if they catch fire, they could very well win the World Series. So, here are my picks. I will say, because this is the first year of this format, but also because it works out that the home team will get, if necessary, all three games of this series, I am going to pick the Guardians, and I'm going to pick the Blue Jays. The truth is I'm picking each home team to win the Wild Card Series. Now, I know you, you could probably think that, yeah, you play three-game series all year in one ballpark, but it's such a different atmosphere in the postseason, and I think it's going to take a year for road teams to really get adjusted to this, to have to play every game on the road. Not, and look, there have been series where you played every game on the road, but every game on the road, but... The problem is that was when it was a wild card game. It was a one-game playoff. This is a three-game series, potentially. It's a best two out of three, and every game on the road. The Rays will not play in Tampa. The Rays, theoretically, may have just had their last game in Tampa, despite playing at least two more games this year. And so I'm going with the Guardians. I will also say that I think Cleveland has better a better starting rotation. They're probably deeper. And I would say they have a better manager in Terry Francona, even though Kevin Cash is obviously very smart. I'll take the Guardians. Blue Jays and the Mariners. You know, I think the Mariners probably have better pitching, more consistent pitching than Toronto. Blue Jays definitely have a scarier lineup. And Rogers Center is also a very tough place to play in general in the postseason. So I will take the Blue Jays for that one. I think the Astros are going to play the Blue Jays. I think the Yankees are going to play the Guardians in the American League Division Series. We move on to the National League. Number one overall seed in this postseason, the Los Angeles Dodgers, who entering Wednesday have won 110 games, tying the 1909 Pittsburgh Pirates for the second most wins by an NL team. Now, that might not be that significant. However, the team with the most wins ever by an NL team was the 1906 Chicago Cubs, who did not win the World Series. They ended up losing in the World Series to the White Sox four games to two. And even though the Pirates only played 154 games, 
1909, so obviously they'll be better than the Dodgers in terms of win percentage. The Dodgers theoretically could end up being the winningest World Series champion ever for a National League team. There are only a few teams that are ahead of them. I think the, the in terms of total wins, regardless of World Series win or not, the 1906 Cubs won 116 games in a 154-game season. The 01 Mariners won 116 in a 162, lost in the ALCS. You have the 27 Yankees who won 110 games, but had the highest winning percentage of a world champion, 110 games in a 154-game season. And the 98 Yankees who won 114 games, but that was in a 162-game season. So it's something really impressive for the Dodgers to be that high on that list. It is a team that has excelled at times despite major injuries. But, I mean, they brought in Freddie Freeman this year. And let's also remember, they lost Max Scherzer in the offseason. After bringing him in in the middle of the year, they lost him this offseason. They let go of Corey Seager. They let Trey Turner become a full-time shortstop. So the Dodgers somehow became better. I don't know. And again, they're the team to beat. They will be the favorite to win the World Series this year. Number two, the Atlanta Braves, after a sweep of the New York Metropolitans in Atlanta and winning one more game against the Marlins, captured their fifth straight National League East title. They get a first-round bye. They will host either the Cardinals, the Mets, or the Padres and again, they will probably be, I would say, besides the Dodgers, it'll, it'll be the Braves and then probably the Mets that I think will be the scariest teams in the National League. The Braves, of course, with home field advantage over the Mets, however. The Cardinals are the three seed. This week, Albert Pujols, who has gone on a rampage, hit 700 home runs, will ride off into the sunset was pulled off the field at the same time as Yadier Molina, who we know will be retiring, and pulled off the field at the same time as Adam Wainwright, who I don't know if he will be retiring, but I think you could argue he's a guy who, at the very least, is going to get his number retired by the Cardinals, but he's a guy who I would argue could and maybe should be in the Hall of Fame, and he's probably the best pitcher the Cardinals have had maybe since... Maybe since Bob Gibson and Steve Carlton, honestly, you can make that argument. He is a, a, at, le at least as a starter, I think you could say that. Bruce Suter is, will, will throw his hat into the ring, but one of the best the Cardinal, Cardinals have ever had. Pujols, obviously, one of, if not the great, one of the greatest right-handed hitters who ever lived. Probably the best right, yeah, he's got to be the best right-handed hitter in the best, in the history of the organization, and Probably, I would still argue Stan Musial is the best player in the history of the Cardinals, but Pujols is not far behind. Yadier Molina, undoubtedly the greatest catcher in the history of the organization, maybe the best catcher of the 21st century. I'd put Joe Maurer right up there, and there are probably some other guys who I'm, I, I, I can't, who I have, don't have off the, off the top of my head that probably belong up there as well. Buster Posey is probably one of them, but. Really, uh, three guys who are at least two, at the very least, two of whom are going to the Hall of Fame. 
and I, I could argue all three, but St. Louis Cardinals, what a well-run organization. Now, I don't know if this team is going to be all that dangerous. I don't, I don't know if they'll get out of the division series, but I'll, I will argue that they will knock off the Philadelphia Phillies and get to the NLDS. I'll get to that. I'll get to the Phillies in a moment. Number first off, the Mets are the number four seed. They blew a big opportunity in Atlanta, where if they had just won one of those three games, they would have clinched the season series against the Braves. Ultimately, the Braves clinched the season series. If the Mets had just won one game in Atlanta, they would have probably. It, they they would have built their own. They would have created their own destiny. They would have controlled their own destiny at that point, because they had three games with the Nationals. Braves had three games with the Marlins, and the Mets would have been tied with the Braves and had the tiebreaker. So if the Mets had just taken one of those games in Atlanta, even with Degrom going Friday and Scherzer going Saturday, just the way they would have wanted to put it, that's the ideal setup. Maybe vice versa, but. I mean, those are the the only two guys you really want. The Mets just couldn't get it done. DeGrom left Friday's game with a blister. However, the Mets finished with 100 wins for only the fourth time in franchise history. I was trying to remember. I was trying to remember. Fourth time in franchise history. It's only the fourth time ever they've won 100 games in a single season. The other three times... 1969 when they won the World Series, 1986 when they won the World Series, 1988, a team that maybe, if you're a Mets fan, you could argue maybe should have won the World Series. They lost to the Dodgers four games to three in the NLCS. That was the Dodger team that went on to upset the Oakland A's in the World Series behind, of course, the the famous Kirk Gibson home run and a masterful performance by Oral Hershiser. But the Mets are in for the first time since 2016, this is maybe not the culmination because the Mets are still the Mets still have a ways a ways to go and could Mets could end up winning the whole thing this year, let alone you know any other. But this is one of the great points in the history of the the in the early portion of this takeover by Steve Cohen. Not to mention it's one of the great moments for Buck Showalter. By the way, Pete Alonso breaks the Mets record for runs batted in in a single season. If not for Aaron Judge this year, overtaking New York and overtaking the league, and I would say Paul Goldschmidt, who I would argue probably should win the NL MVP, Freddie Freeman maybe could be up there as well, Pete Alonso would have been the talk of the town. I mean, a guy who's got 40 home runs and over 130 runs batted in. He has, at last I checked, I think he actually has the same amount of RBIs as Judge. The difference, of course, that Judge's batting average is a lot higher, and that the home run he has a lot more home runs. But really, something very impressive. Not to mention for the Mets, Jeff McNeil, very likely to win the NL batting title and become only the second Met ever to do it. The other being Jose Reyes in 2011. At five, the San Diego Padres in the postseason for the second time in three seasons. And the first time, uh, besides the pandemic, that they're in the playoffs, I believe since 2006, there was 07 where they had that one-game playoff with the Rockies just to get into the wild card, but that was technically a regular season game. 
Now, of course, they will be they will be without Fernando Tatis Jr. due to his suspension. But a team that went out and traded for Juan Soto and and for Josh Bell, it is a lethal team. This this team could be a real firecracker going into the playoffs and could actually be honestly somehow a sleeper team for the World Series. Number six, the Philadelphia Phillies. This is a big one because you know I didn't see I didn't see this coming that the Phillies would make the playoffs. I know there there's been a lot of pressure on them the last couple of years with Harper coming in, but I really did not understand the hype behind them. They kind of played below the hype the last couple of years, and I honestly thought the Brewers were going to get in. And I thought the Brewers were a better team, but the Phillies ultimately get it, and it's the first time in eleven years. Believe it or not, eleven years. The Phillies are going to the playoffs. First playoff appearance since 2011. And strangely enough, they will face the same team they faced last time they were knocked out of the playoffs. That's the St. Louis Cardinals. Some people might forget that the Phillies won the NL East for five straight years. And this was a a, a stretch after the Braves had won, what, 11 in a row. And then the Mets won one in 06. But the Braves had dominated the National League East and dominated the National League in general. They'd even won three NL West titles when they were still in the NL West prior to the strike and the divisions were, and there were only two divisions in each league. So the Phillies really just dominated the league for the, the NL East for five years, won the World Series in 08, won the National League pennant in 09, went to the NLCS in 2010. And they were a dangerous team. Ryan Howard has, I think, maybe the high, he might have the highest non-steroid RBI total in this millennium. I think he had 141 runs batted in in 2009. That he was a he was a, an RBI monster. Jimmy Rollins was an MVP. You had great pitching in Cole Hamels and later on Cliff Lee and Roy Halladay. This was a very good ball club. Uh, Jason Worth, Shane Victorino is a very good team. And it's funny to think, though, it's been 11 years. And now they are finally back. That being said, I'm taking the Cardinals to knock them off. I think they're a more fundamentally sound team. I think they're a better managed team. Of course, Robbie Thompson came in in the middle of the year as the interim after Joe Girardi was fired for the Phillies. The Mets I will take to knock off the Padres. So I say the Dodgers will play the Mets, and boy, would that be a fun series. And then the Braves will play the Cardinals, That would also be a great series. Last time they faced off in the playoffs, I believe, if memory serves me correctly, was 2019 when the Cardinals obliterated the Braves in Game 5 of the NLDS, punched their ticket to the NLCS, in Atlanta, by the way, to punch their ticket to the NLCS before getting swept by the eventual world champion, Washington Nationals. Now, uh, one more piece of news within the MLB. Shohei Otani signs a $30 million deal for 2023, the largest ever in arbitration. Now, his hitting stats are not really that close to the level of judge, but Otani on the year, I mean, his his pitching numbers have been so impressive, and that's what's made him such a candidate for MVP. Now, Otani on the year, 34 home runs, 95 runs batted in. And 95 runs batted in, maybe not a career year necessarily. He had 46 and 100 last year. He had a better batting average this year. This is at least going into the final day. Hit 273 this year, hit 257 
last year. 30 doubles, pretty good year offensively, but I think when you combine it with his pitching year, and also I won't say he'll win the Cy Young either. He's not necessarily the best pitcher in the league this year. I would argue Justin Verlander should win the American League Cy Young. But Otani, even for a team that's not been great and has kind of been out of it for a little while, solid pitching year, 15-8. and eight. I know people say that, you know, the win is not a is not the be-all, end-all for a pitcher. But to win 15 games with a Brave team, with a, with a Brave team, with an, Atlanta, with an Anaheim team that has really just not been, again, not been that good this year in general, win 15 games is pretty impressive. He went 15-8, and 2.35 ERA, made 27 starts through 161 innings. So it's not just that he's, you know, just throwing five innings either. He's averaging just shy of six innings an outing which is honestly not bad for, for this day and age, at least. A 207 opposing batting average, 213 strikeouts, a whip just above one. Really, very, very impressive. An impressive year for Otani. And honestly, $30 million, the largest ever in arbitration. It makes a lot of sense for the Angels to pay him that much and for him to be the highest paid player in arbitration ever. Now, let's get to some really light, fluffy news. Tua Tagovailoa. No, but uh, Tua Tagovailoa was... Seriously, I stretched off the field and... I honestly think one of the most violent moments I've seen that just didn't have to be scripted first. He somehow... I'm stunned at this, but somehow returned from the University of Cincinnati Medical Center to watch the end of the game... He apparently watched a movie on the plane. I don't know how that's not uh, a significant. I don't know how that's not something that people have really paid a lot of attention to. But watching a movie at all, I would say, even like having certain lights on, definitely goes against every concussion protocol I ever saw from high school football. Okay, I watched friends in high school play football and get concussions and not not be able to watch movies. I can only imagine what it's like in the NFL. The NFLPA fired the unaffiliated neurotrauma consultant who evaluated Tagovailoa during the week three game versus Buffalo over, quote, several mistakes. Now, I do understand. I, I, could, I honestly could believe that the idea that he actually had back spasms, and that's why he was walking that way. I honestly, at least in the Buffalo game, I could actually believe that. But, I don't know. The fact that the fact that he even played in this game, let alone took that hit, my God. It, was, it wasn't even necessarily a dirt. I mean, he shouldn't have slammed him down. I don't know if it was necessarily a dirty hit. I don't know if there was necessar- necessarily any malintent there, but this was just handled so poorly, and I mean, I, I this, just the way his head snapped back and the way he hit the ground, and just watching his fingers clenched like that, it's just morbid to watch. It's, you feel for the guy, and look, I mean, he was the first one to pretty much come out and say, I'm fine, essentially, which is, you know, I guess... 
selfless and it's it's a very competitive nature, but I mean, I don't even know if he, it's possible he didn't even know what he was talking about. He apparently didn't seem dazed or anything like that during the press conference with the, the Bills game, but he has been ruled out for next week, or this upcoming week, fortunately. The NFL and the NFLPA now agree to rule out players with gross motor instability, which, I mean, it, there are some cases where that might be excessive. Some cases where I think it's just, like, it could actually be coincidental, but this is a real turning point, I think. I saw something today that apparently Bennett Omalu, who, if you don't know, was the doctor played by Will Smith in Concussion. He was the doctor who kind of first turned on, or tried to, turn on the NFL to make them, to the idea that head trauma is a, that, that football, playing football results in head trauma, can result in major head trauma, but he essentially said that Tua Tagovailoa should never play a down again. I don't know if he's right. I don't know if he's wrong. I don't. I love this game, but I also want people to be safe. Personally, I think that every player should have to wear that that neck brace, that one that you that, that it seems like only defensive linemen and maybe some linebackers really wear that sticks up behind your neck. I know it could throw off your. I don't know. It could throw off your throwing ability. I don't know if it does, but or, or your athletic movement. But I mean, I I take that over whatever trauma may come from this game. I don't know. But this was just really, really just abhorrent having to see that Dolphins fall to the. Bengals, ultimately, they'll play against the Jets on Sunday in East Rutherford, and they'll play with Jacoby Brissett at quarterback. The Vikings defeat the Saints 28-25 in London on Sunday morning, Sunday morning East Coast time. I turned the game on a bit late, but it was quite the finish as Will Lutz hit a 60-yarder to tie the game after the Vikings had jumped in front. Justin Jefferson had that little end-around touchdown. He was untouched. Had over 140 yards through the air in this game. The Vikings would retake the lead about a minute after Lutz's 60-yarder on another field goal. And then somehow, with I think what, like 20-25 seconds left, the Saints get the ball. To their credit, march down the field. No Jameis Winston. Andy Dalton marches them down the field and gets them to the 43, 44-yard line of Minnesota. Will Lutz had, honestly, a pretty good kick. It was a 61-yard try that hits the left upright, goes off the crossbar, and out. If it's about two inches to the right, or probably bounces two, inch, probably bounces two inches further out the back of the end zone on that crossbar, they go to overtime, but I, I can't even blame Lutz for, for missing that kick. Just a very, a really a great game. A great game, and I will say the Vikings and Saints have carved out kind of a mini rivalry in the last 
few years, last decade and a half or so, going to going back to the NFC Championship game between the Vikings and the Saints with Favre making that huge mistake, throwing back across his body, getting picked off by Porter, and the Saints winning in overtime, going on to win the Super Bowl. Then the the Minneapolis miracle with Stephon Diggs, and then the Vikings upsetting the Saints in New Orleans in overtime in the first round of the playoffs. So even you know in the, in the post Breeze, post post Peyton era, they've carved out a nice little rivalry. But the Vikings have Vikings have not gotten the better of a lot of teams over their history, but they have gotten the better of the Saints in recent years. New York Giants defeat the Chicago Bears 20-12. Bears drop to 2-2. Two two. Giants go to 3-1. Daniel Jones rushes for two TDs. Saquon Barkley has an unbelievable game that continues his solid start. 146 yards and 31 carries. Probably the best first four games of a season for his career. Giants, I think Jones only ended up throwing like 71, yard, for th- 71 yards and only ended up making 70, uh, 13 throws, but the Giants just continue to dominate on bootleg play action where Jones was all alone and usually finding someone like Daniel Bellinger and following him to the edge of the line. So that, that was the big thing there for the Giants. Jones, day-to-day with an ankle injury, was taken out of the game, had to return, especially after this rule now, this ruling made in the wake of the Tagovailoa injury that you know anyone with gross motor instability has to gross motor function whatever has to leave the game Tyrod Taylor suffered a, suffered a concussion Jones had to come back in of course a, a concussion a head injury takes precedence over an ankle injury but still Jones had to return to the game and even then you know the, the Giants would survive because of the late heroics of Barkley running the Wildcat. Frankly, because they didn't have a lot of a choice, much of a choice really there. Giants held on to win 20-12. They limited the Bears in the red zone to four field goals. Aaron Robinson placed on IR with a knee injury. He had returned from appendix surgery during the offseason, but cornerback has really been the weak spot for the Giants other than the majority of the offensive line. But Corner has been a, a bit of a weak spot since they left, let go of James Bradbury. The much maligned Kenny Galladay, already angry at really not getting targeted, is not expected to travel to London as the Giants will take on the Green Bay Packers this week. Galladay with an MCL sprain. The Jets defeat the Steelers by a score of 24-20. to Zach Wilson catches the Philly-Philly touchdown. They were up 10-0 in Pittsburgh early on. Steelers brought in Kenny Pickett, who threw a pick on his first career pass, but ran for two TDs. Minka Fitzpatrick also had a pick at the Jet 4-yard line that led to a Steeler touchdown. Kenny Pickett now named the new starter for the Steelers. However, the Jets did come back from down 20-10. to 10. They flipped the script, had a 10-point lead, then trailed 10, then scored 14 points in the fourth quarter as Brees Hall punched it in for the game winner with 16 seconds to play in Pittsburgh. Big statement win for the Jets and kind of a Pyrrhic victory for the Steelers in that maybe they have figured things out with Kenny Pickett as their new starter. Buffalo Bills surprisingly 
trailed 20-3 in the second quarter in Baltimore. They come all the way back to win 23-20. They hit a 21-yard field goal as time expires. J.K. Dobbins. Tough day for J.K. Dobbins, really, for the Ravens. 13 carries for only 41 yards. And I will say, Lamar Jackson has a good arm, but this really is a team that's more predicated on the run. And when you cannot, when you blow a 17-point lead and cannot score points in the second half, you know that's odds are you're not going to win the football game. So big win for the Bills. Eagles improved to four and zero. The Philadelphia Eagles are the only remaining undefeated team this season. They were down 14 nothing to the Jaguars, a Jaguar team that I think is actually a lot better than we think now. Very surprising start to their year. The Eagles pull off a 29-21 win over the Jaguars in Doug Peterson's return to Philadelphia. Jalen Hurts was kind of limited on the day. 16 completions, 204 passing yards, no touchdowns, one pick. However, their run game really picked it up, not just him, but more importantly, Miles Sanders, 134 yards and two touchdowns in the win for the Eagles. The Seahawks win a 48-45 shootout in Detroit. Something I never thought I'd hear. Geno Smith winning a shootout with the Lions. DK Metcalf and Shad Penny combining, rushing and receiving, of course, for about 300 yards for the day. The Lions, again, with the kind of Pyrrhic victories, they've been in every one of their games. They've been in pretty much every one of their games. It's just a matter of finishing, but they obviously finished more games so far this year than they did last year. Cowboys hold off Washington 25-10. to Cowboys and the Giants even at 3-1, a game back of the Eagles. Of course, the Cowboys have the tiebreaker over the Giants after the 23-16 win at MetLife Stadium on Monday Night Football last week. NFC East shaping up to perhaps be the the best division in football because even Washington looks decent. Also rather surprising considering NFC East has been maybe the worst division in the NFL for quite some time now. The Green Bay Packers top the New England Patriots 23-20 in overtime. New England lost Brian Hoyer for the game after, of course, being without Mac Jones due to his injury last week against the Ravens. Billy Zapp- Bailey Zappi was in at quarterback. I think I was thinking of Billy Zane there. Bailey Zappi was in at quarterback, did a decent job, and the Patriots forced overtime. I can only imagine what they actually would have done with Jones in at QB. Packers have, have won a lot of low-scoring games this year, and it's absolutely true that their defense has played a bigger role. J.J. Watt somehow plays despite atrial fibrillation. The Cardinals win in Carolina by a score of 26-16. Jonathan Taylor twists his ankle in a loss to the Titans. The Titans have really picked things up in the last couple of weeks. Of course, the Colts have really not been able to figure it out aside from that Chiefs game and probably the second half of the Texans game. Taylor will not play Thursday in Denver, another team that has had surprising struggles early on. Russell Wilson had his first three-touchdown game with the Broncos against the Raiders, but it was in a loss. He was listed as limited in practice, but is expected to play against the Colts on Thursday. I would probably take the Broncos in that one with no Jonathan Taylor. The 49ers topped the Rams 24-9 on Monday Night Football. Matthew Stafford throws a pick six late in this game. The Rams have really struggled early on considering they're the defending world champions. Jimmy Garoppolo doing enough 
to earn the trust of the 49ers in the wake of Trey Lance's injury. Briefly, we will go to college football. The Wisconsin Badgers have fired head coach Paul Christ, who finishes with a 67-26 and record at his alma mater. That's about a 720 or so winning percentage. Started this year, though, 2-3 and three in a very loaded Big Ten this year. Besides, of course, Michigan, Michigan State. Well, Michigan State's been a little off this year. But Ohio State, Penn State, and then Iowa has looked fairly good. Minnesota has looked great. It's you know been a lot of great competition. But surprisingly, they do fire Paul Christ. He will be paid an $11 million buyout on a $20 million deal running through 2027. Jim Leonard, a three-time All-American defensive back at Wisconsin and a former NFL safety, I probably remember him best, uh, was a really good safety for the Jets, as a matter of fact, in their days in the late 2000s when they were going to the AFC Championship game back-to-back years, will be their interim head coach for the remainder of the year. Wisconsin, again, at three losses, maybe still, honestly, if, if they win certain games and get a little help, they might still have a shot at playing in the Big Ten Championship game. I think we've always known that the Big Ten East has tended to be better than the Big Ten West, so, I mean, we'll see. Minnesota would really have to fall off, but Wisconsin, we'll see what happens for them in the future. I don't know. Talking about the NBA for just a moment, Tyler Hero signs an exorbitant four-year, $130 million extension with the Miami Heat. Guy who solidifies the outside, no-brainer move. Pretty obvious as the Heat try to claw their way back after losing in seven games to the Celtics in the Eastern Conference Finals. Things could be a lot different with Udoka out this year. And so it could be a very vulnerable year for the Celtics. The Heat should probably be the one team that should be, well, aside from maybe the Bucks, scaring them the most. To the NHL, the Islanders sign Matt Barzal to an eight-year deal. It's it's almost hard to believe how much how much time has flown by that Barzal has led the Islanders in points each of the last five seasons. He is one of the most skilled and honestly, in many ways, one of the more underrated forwards in the NHL. He is just so incredibly important to this team, and to think that he's the guy who really stepped up after. John Tavares decided to leave, go home, play for the Maple Leafs, and the Islanders only got better. Went to the conference final, back-to-back years, including one year in the bubble. Had a very tough last last season as they played, I think, I swear to God, I think it was their first 13 games on the road before their first game at UBS Arena due to construction issues. And then, you know, like half their team getting COVID last year. A lot, of res- a lot of rescheduling, so many things that killed them. I, th- I think it was a really, last year was really a fluke. Guys are getting older, but last year was really a fluke for the Islanders, a team that should be one of the better teams, at least in the Metropolitan Division this year. And uh, pr- frankly, if you sign Barzell for eight years, probably for a long, long time. Cam Talbot out five to seven weeks for Ottawa to start the year with an upper body injury. This is an Ottawa team that I thought got better this offseason. They're getting more experienced for sure. They named Brady Kachuk their captain. 
And, you know, Matt Murray, I guess, was not the solution in Ottawa camp. Talbot is a guy who has been kind of a journeyman goaltender, but he's been pretty solid over the course of his career. Could make a difference, but it's going to take some time, and that could really set back the Senators early on. Speaking of goaltenders, Jake Allen re-ups with the Habs for two years and $7.7 million. He struggled in 35 games played last year, went 9-20-4 with a 3.30 goals against and only two shutouts. However, this was a team that finished with the number one draft pick. He still finished with a 9.05 save percentage, which is honestly not terrible, I think, for that team. Carey Price, of course, on long-term IR with a knee injury since August. And one last thing for the NHL, Dale Howarchuk honored with a bronze statue in Winnipeg this week. So Dale Howarchuk, if you do not know, played nine of his 16 seasons with the Jets, and he, of course, sadly passed away from stomach cancer two years ago at age 57. He is probably the best player in the history of the organization. I know that technically... It's kind of a weird thing where Shane Doan, this is a different franchise from the original Jets. It's not like the Cleveland Browns where this iteration of the Browns retains the Browns' history before they moved to Baltimore. So technically this is the Atlanta Thrashers franchise, but Dale Howarchuk is the greatest Winnipeg Jet of all time. He won the Calder Trophy in the 81-82 season, of course their Rookie of the Year, including Wayne Gretzky, no, no player in the past, what, 65 years or so in the history of the NHL had scored 100 points in a season at age 18. Gretzky was 18 when he entered the NHL, and not to mention he had played one or maybe two years, I think, in the WHA, which was essentially, which was really a professional league at that point anyway. So Dale Howarchuk did something that a lot of the greatest who ever did it had never done. Over his career, 1,188 games, 518 goals, 891 assists, 1,409 points. Played again nine years in Winnipeg. Played the remainder of his years with the Buffalo Sabres, the St. Louis Blues, and the Philadelphia Flyers. It's a Jets team that was very, very good with Howard Chuck, but didn't quite have the star power of two of the great organizations ever, at, le at least in that time. I, the Edmonton Oilers of the 1980s, of course, had Wayne Gretzky, Mark Messier, Yari Curry, Paul Coffey, Glenn Anderson, Kevin Lowe, Grant Fuhrer. That, that's just the Hall of Famers. I'm not even just pointing out. I think, I can't remember if he's even in yet, but Jeff Bukaboom probably should be in. Some of the greatest, uh, Essa Tikkanen, one of the great postseason players of all time. Name after name after name. And then you know, Bill Ranford, who came in later on at in goal. Uh, Craig Simpson. All these insane names. And then you have, and they won the Stanley Cup five times in a span of seven years, even once after Gretzky got traded to the Kings. Then you had the Calgary Flames with Al McInnes, Mike Vernon, Joe Neuendyke, Lanny McDonald, Theo Fleury, name after name after name, uh, Joel Otto, a team that was absolutely loaded. 
they had to play with those two teams, probably the best two teams in the NHL, in the same division year after year. Year after year, you put those teams in three different divisions, they probably all play in the conference final. Year after year after year. But he is a hero in Winnipeg and, and someone that we lost far too soon. So if there is one person who's going to have a statue in the great city of Winnipeg, it's going to be Dale Howardchuk. Now, it's a strange, strange thing to try to close the show this way, but I think it's something that had to be brought up and was probably really the most important thing that happened this week, even with you know, even with Judge and with all of that and the, the nice things that happened, that was ultimately something that only happened on the field. I know I, I said it had transcendent properties, but this is something that was an international incident and was deeply, deeply disturbing. At least 125 people passed away, you may have seen at a soccer match in Indonesia, pandemonium in East Java, in a game between, between Indonesian soccer clubs. It is one of the most deadly incidents in the history of sports. Initially, one upside, I suppose, initially... People had ruled that 174 were dead, although many victims apparently had been counted twice. Apparently, more than 300 people were rushed to the hospital. This this whole thing started when Arema, I hope I'm pronouncing this correctly, Arema FC fell to rival Persibaya Surabaya, three to two, and thousands of Arema fans knowing that this was the first loss to Persebaya at home in 23 years through bottles and other objects, players, referees, etc. Then they came onto the field, violence came outside the stadium. I'm, I'm kind of looking through this just to make sure I've got everything right. I'm looking at the the article from ESPN here describing things. At least five police vehicles were toppled and set ablaze. Police fired tear gas. And apparently uh, one, at least one spectator said police had started beating fans with sticks and shields. The fans resisted. And apparently a number of people died because of, one, the shortness of breath from tear gas, but also, unfortunately, from the trampling that came from people beginning to run due to the pandemonium. 34 died within the building, and 125, at least 125, are dead in total. Now, I can't possibly try to rationalize this.
because clearly this is not rational behavior. These are not people who listen to reason, nor do I expect they're really listening to me anyway, but if there's one thing I can tell you, it's that even arguing with a person at a stadium, at an arena, one thing can really lead to another. It's unfortunate how much people can't really get carried away regarding sports. And sports is a beautiful thing because it's a unifying thing. It really brings communities together more than maybe anything, actually. But unfortunately, some people just take rivalries way too far. It happens around the world. It has happened at times in this country. And unfortunately, it tends to happen a lot with soccer. It's rather coincidental timing, as a matter of fact, because recently there was an episode of Welcome to Wrexham. It's a great show if you don't know it. It's Ryan Reynolds and Rob McElhenney purchased a Welsh soccer club. It's the third oldest soccer club in the world. And they also are making a docu-series about the team, about, about their ownership, about soccer in general. And unfortunately, well, coincidentally, there was an episode put out recently, and I believe it was called Hooligans. And so hooliganism is just an extreme form of fandom that tends to run pretty rampant, primarily in England. A lot of middle-class young men who are just frustrated with with maybe the, the way the, the world or the job market has treated them. And they tend to be very violent for no real good reason. They arrange fights. I recommend, I recommend you, you watch the episode if you want to learn more about things like this. And obviously it's, you know, England is different from Indonesia. But I can at least, I can at least tell you that, look, I love sports. It's, I, I love calling, talking, calling sports games, talking about sports for a living. But I can tell you right now that it's not everything. It's not worth the violence. Nothing is really worth violence, but sports are not worth violence off the field, off the court, off the ice for people in the stands. You're there to enjoy the game. Even if you're rooting for different people, you're there to enjoy the game. And the athletes, look, the athletes, I'd say most of them at the very least are giving an all-out effort. And even if they aren't, there's no need to get violent. It's an unfortunate thing. It's very unfortunate that things like this happen. And so, if you ever go to a game, professional, college, high school, whatever, you get into an argument with someone, 
remember this. Because there's, look, there's no good reason that these people needed to die this way. But we can at least learn from this. Learn from times like this, or the riots in Vancouver in 1994 or 2011. A number of things. It's, it's not necessary. I'm as serious about sports as anyone. But even I know that there's no good reason for this. And so I just implore you to just remember this next time you're in next time you're in a stadium and there's even if even if you're not the belligerent party, but if there's a a person whether sober or inebriated just to remember this and remember things can escalate quickly. And so I, I know I, I leave here on a bit of a sour note, but I just hope that you've understood the message. Thank you so much for listening. I very much appreciate your time. This has been Sports in the Waiting Room. I am Chris Russo reminding you that good things come to those who wait.